0: This chapter here, this, this section we're looking at today, is by far what the Book of Ecclesiastes is best known for. This this search of Solomon, this pursuit of Solomon, is is by far the most famous part of the Book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, um, some find it so pivotal that that some interpreters of Ecclesiastes never get beyond it, and they kind of interpret the entire book through the lens of this chapter. And I, and I don't, I wouldn't go that far, but. I will say this from the beginning. God has used this chapter in my life, and I know in many others, but God has used this chapter in my life at times when I have been wrestling with seasons of doubt and dryness. Times where, and I have had times where, you know, where I've wondered about whether I will continue in my faith or whether I should just chuck it and give up. And, and this is one of the means by which God has used to preserve my faith. Like this chapter. And so it's a, it's a really pivotal, it's a really important chapter. And it's really one of the reasons why many people love the book of Ecclesiastes. You can, you can put up the, uh, the slide there if you want. If you want. Um, it's got to be on hide screen. Along the the top right or top uh, right corner there, there you go. And that'll come up in a second. So I want to work through this chapter, or it's basically a chapter and a half. And in order to do this, uh, we have a pretty uh, highly we have a pretty highly educated uh, congregation here. And so when as I was reading this passage, my my thought was uh, my thought turned to like. Well, Zelig, like, you'll appreciate this. My thought was turned to writing a thesis as I read this chapter. And because as I read this chapter, I, I found like the structure of this chapter uh, is similar to this process of writing, uh, writing a thesis. Let's see if I can do this here. There we go. I got it. We're good. It's similar to process of writing a thesis in that there is a introduction, there is a body there's a conclusion and then there's some implications of this study. And I, as I was reading this, it, it, it occurred to me that Solomon treated his life as a research project. Solomon treated his life as a research project. And in this first section in, in, in chapter 1, verses 12 to the end of the chapter, you kind of get his introduction. So, so let's just take a quick look at uh, Solomon's introduction here. In, in his search, in his pursuit, in this, in this research project of his life, we have in chapter 1, uh, in, in this first section of chapter 1, we have first uh, Solomon speaks about his credentials, his credentials for undertaking this sort of research project with his life. He says in chapter uh, 1, verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And and later in the book, he he speaks about this. I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, Combined with the first verse of this book, the opening verse of, of Ecclesiastes, where he says the words of the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. So we're set in a position to assume that the author of this book, the king in question, is is Solomon. Now you can read some of the commentaries and they'll debate, is this actually Solomon who wrote this book? Is it someone speaking in the voice of Solomon, like giving the experience of Solomon? Uh, And there's arguments on both sides, um, you know, uh, as they're saying, like if Solomon would have spoken to us at the end of his life, this is what he would have shared. There's arguments on both sides, and uh, however, uh, regardless of what position is taken, it's, it's easy to see how the Book of Ecclesiastes is assigned to Solomon. Solomon possessed unique credentials, unique qualifications for taking his life and using his life as a research project. Solomon, uh, basically, there's two things we had we know of Solomon's life and and, and so whether he is the author or whether someone's drawing on his life as the author, I, I'm just going to say Solomon uh, for the sake of this simplification. Um, but he had two unique credentials in his life. First was he was a man of wisdom, and second, he was a man of great prosperity. There are entire chapters in the Bible, and I didn't want to take the time, you can take the time, First Kings chapter 4 would be one of them, if you want to take that home and read it, First Kings chapter 4, and... Uh, second chronicles chapter nine if you read those two chapters particularly you can get a sense both of the wisdom of solomon and the prosperity of solomon in in uh, first Kings chapter four uh, it's a story of when solomon was still a young man and god appeared to him in a dream and said i will give you anything you ask for only ask of me and i'll give it to you and solomon asked the lord Uh, If he humbles himself and says, I'm I'm just a young man, I, I need your help, will you give me wisdom, the ability to discern right from wrong as I rule your people? And it says, God says, because you didn't ask for wealth or riches or prosperity, I will give you what you asked for, I'll give you wisdom, and in giving you wisdom, I'll give you wealth and resources and prosperity, and as you read the account of Solomon's life, he indeed is a man both of wisdom and is a man both of prosperity. And Solomon, at least at some point early on in his life, says, God has given me these two things. He's, he's given me a unique qualification to use my life as a research project. I have excelled in wisdom beyond every other king who's reigned, and I've excelled in prosperity beyond every other king who's reigned. And so I have unique, you know, I have unique uh, intellectual and wisdom resources, and I have unique uh, prosperity and possession resources, and I can undertake a research project with my life that really no one else is in the position to undertake. And, and so he speaks of his unique qualifications, and he speaks of the subject of his exploration. This is why I see this as like an introduction to his research project. So here's the subject he's going to explore. The subject he's going to explore is this unhappy business of life. As we looked at last week as I introduced the whole book, we talked last week about two of these unhappy businesses of life. And two very concrete illustrations I gave last week. The first illustration was what? Go outside and the breath. You go outside and you breathe and that mist, that vapor that comes out and you see it's fleeting and you can't grasp it. And he spoke about that's one of the frustrations, the unhappy business of life that Solomon's exploring. Is that life is ungraspable and that the moment you think you've pinned it down, it slips through your fingers. And in doing that, it's it's running away from us. It's it's fleeting. And the second unhappy business of life that was introduced already was, remember the other illustration I gave last week? What was that? The dishiness of life. And I used the dishes, the, the, the idea of doing dishes, the idea that in this fleeting, ungraspable life, we spend most of our life doing monotonous things that seem to not really matter in a hundred years. The, you know, 42 minutes a week or 66 minutes a week or whatever it is in your house that you spend doing dishes over, you know, time and time doing these monotonous tasks, waiting for the bus. And life is fleeting and life is short and life is monotonous and it doesn't seem to have a purpose. And so Solomon's subject of his exploration, his research project he's going to do with his life is he's, he's setting out to explore the unhappy business of life that seems to be what God has assigned to us as human beings. That's the subject of his exploration. He speaks in this introduction to his research project. He speaks about his method. So his method is going to be different than some of the methods in some of your disciplines that you use in your research that you use at university or that you've studied in your discipline that is your job. So some of you might be in the sciences where you might use the scientific method as the primary means of your exploration in your field. Uh, Some other exploit philosophers might use rationality the laws of logic and reason for their subject of exploration in their field. That would be their methodology. Solomon has a different methodology. That doesn't mean his research project is any less valid. It means he's using a different methodology. Solomon's methodology that he's using is the methodology of wisdom. And so what this means is his methodology that he's going to do, he's going to describe in his research project, is he's going to say, I went out and I lived every kind of life I could. I used my resources as the king. I used my prosperity as the king. I used my industry as the king. I used everything available to me that's not available to any of you. And it's not. It's definitely not available to me, some of the things he was able to do. But he says, I I was in a unique position to be able to use all this stuff that God had given me, and I'm going to go and live every pursuit of life And in living my life, I'm not just going to live my life for my own sake just to to experience the joy of it. I'm going to live my life for this research project. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to live it and then I'm going to reflect on it. I'm going to live my life and reflect on my life. I'm going to live on it and reflect on it as is is there anything to this unhappy business that God has assigned us. So Solomon is actually setting himself forward for all of our behalf to say, I will live the full life that you won't be able to. I'll live all those pursuits and I will do this for you and I'm going to see is there anything to this unhappy business of life. And then I'm going to reflect on it through wisdom and then give you my answer. That's Solomon's methodology. To apply his heart, to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under, his hev- under heaven. That's his methodology to apply. And he gives us, this is why it's a good good abstract or introduction he this conclusion at the he writes the thesis at the beginning this is the thesis this is the conclusion he comes to as he uses his life for this research project he says and by the way here's the conclusion i come to all is vanity all is a striving after the wind and what is crooked cannot be made straight so so it's the same thing he said at the beginning of the book everything is a breath everything is habel. everything is we, 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 I told you that expression, shepherding the wind, like, whew, and then try to grasp onto it and try to try to try to extract any good from it, shepherding the wind. And then he says one other thing that he hasn't set up until this. He says, "What is crooked cannot be made straight." And so he said, "Look at through my research project, I confirmed life is a breath, life is a shepherding the wind. It's a striving after, trying to grasp the wind, and." It is so messed up that you can do nothing as a human being to straighten it out. He says that's his summary of of his findings. Gives it to us right in the introduction. And he does something then (laughs) that you might not find in your research projects. I don't know if you do this in your papers, but he writes not only his, you know, introduces his method, introduces his subject matter, uh, gives his thesis of what is going to be his summary of his finding, but he actually says, this is what it meant to me. This is what it did to me. This is what my research project did to me. For in much wisdom, there is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So, Get this, from the beginning of Solomon's research, or actually through Solomon's research project, he devoted his life to answer an important question. I was listening to a podcast, uh, and, and the guy said, this is what I do. I take big questions, and I devote my life to, 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 to exploring a big question. And he said, that is what's motivated me in my life, is to find the biggest question and to explore and to, to put all my resources into trying to figure it out. And that's what Solomon has done. He has taken one question, this unhappy business that God has given us, and he has spent his entire life trying to figure out, is there anything that can be grasped onto and gained from this life? And he said this, I caution you from doing the same sort of project Because I'll tell you what it brought me. It brought me vexation and sorrow. It hurt. And we're going to see how much it hurts as we go through his project. So that's the introduction. That's what we get all in his introduction. Now let's actually get to the body of his paper. Let's get to his research data. And what we see when we get to his research data is we actually see that he, he, he basically devoted himself to a number of different pursuits to, to see if these different pursuits would, would upend the unhappy business of life, if he could extract any joy from these unhappy pursuits, if he could extract anything good from these unhappy pursuits. And so his first pursuit is his first pursuit is pursuing pleasure and happiness as an end to itself. It seems like a good place to start, right? Can you find joy and pleasure and happiness in life? It seems like that would be a good place to start. So this is what he does. He says in his heart, verse, chapter 2, verse 1, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. In this breath, can we just pursue the things that bring us pleasure? But behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter it's mad, and of pleasure it's mad. What use is it? And so he he didn't just number one just to say maybe 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 the purpose maybe the secret to life is just to enjoy myself. He very quickly said, okay, well, that, there's got to be something more than that. But then he said, what if I enjoy myself with the with the uh, enhancement of drugs and alcohol? <laughs> so he said, I'll, I'll cheer myself. Come, let me let me cheer you with wine i searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine he says my heart was still guiding me was this was still part of the research project right like like <laughs> and i don't think it was just an excuse it wasn't like ah, oh, i'm hanging out in university and just partying and oh yeah no no this is part of my research project but well, that's what he's saying here my wisdom in this but I wanted to see, is there anything in this? And, and I want to lay hold on folly. And, and I might lay hold on this pleasure, lay hold on just this entertainment and, and the good things in life and trying to find joy and pleasure. And I just wanted to hold on to it, see if, to see, he says, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So he, he first pursued happiness as an end to himself. Then he pursues industry as a pursuit. Verse 4, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks. I planted them in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So he then says, listen, as I pursued pleasure, I also then, you know, I also wanted to do some things of significance. And so I built houses and gardens and forests. Solomon was a builder. He spent seven years even building the temple to the Lord. He spent 13 years building his palace. He he spent years of his life beautifying the city of Jerusalem and his his kingdom. He wanted to leave his mark. And as he devoted himself to that industry, he pursued prosperity. And he found it. He didn't just pursue it. He actually experienced prosperity. These next few verses... You know, he talks about how he enlarged his household with slaves. It's not making a moral statement of slavery. What it, what it is basically saying is in the culture of the day, he had all the accoutrements of prosperity. That's basically. We want to read him for, for his own time, right? But he's basically saying, I enlarged my household. I, I bought male and female slaves. I had slaves who were born in my household. So his, his household was enlarged. His possessions were enlarged. He said, I had great possession of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. His, his wealth was enlarged. He said, I gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. His experience of entertainment was enlarged. Uh, he says, uh, I got singers, both men and women. One commentary said, like, you know, your kid might be really excited because they got the new One Direction CD. I think this commentary was written a couple years ago says, so your kid might be really excited because they got the new One Direction CD. Whereas Solomon would have been like, no, I got One Direction to play at my palace. Right? Like, he's like, I don't need the CD. I can just buy the musicians. Right? And so he's, this is, this is one big prosperous party, his life is. And he enlarged his libido. He says, I, I, I had many concubines, the delight of the children of men. And his prowess in that era Was legendary this is the guy who had what 700 wives and a couple hundred more concubines his his prowess in that area was legendary and he basically said i lived the life pleasure industry prosperity i had it all and in fact his conclusion is this chapter 2 verse 9 i became great and surpassed all who were before me in jerusalem here's the difference Solomon intentionally pursued all these things as part of this research project of his life. And so he reflected on this. His wisdom remained with him. And he said, verse 10, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. My heart found pleasure in all my toil. That was the reward for my toil. So he did find a semblance of pleasure. Of course he did. He's got... Musicians and concubines and houses and wealth and riches. And, and he has like, devoted himself to finding enjoyment and pleasure. And, and here, I think this is really important because we have a number of young people and older people. Like sometimes the church, we can kind of give this message like, Oh, life outside the church would just be miserable. No. Like, listen, life outside the church, it might be fun. Uh, let's be honest. There are things that sometimes you're looking at your, your classmates' lives or your coworkers' lives, and you're saying, Man, that sounded like a fun weekend. Be honest about it. Solomon's honest about it. Yeah, my heart did find some pleasure in it. Yet, then he reflected on it in wisdom. And here's his reflection. And I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Right? This is the important step in Solomon's project, not only to test his life in all of the extremes of pleasure, industry, and prosperity, but to reflect on it in wisdom And when he applied himself to consider all that he had pursued, all that he had labored for, all the toils of hands, he comes to the conclusion profoundly that though there was pleasure in it, it was all still breath. It was all still meaningless. There is nothing to be truly gained in it. It was the shepherding after the striving after the wind. And and listen, some of you guys in here might be skeptical, and I, 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 don't, I don't blame you for being skeptical. You might just say, well, that was Solomon's experience. It's not the experience of everyone. Obviously, prosperity and industry and pleasure are going to bring some happiness to you in life. Yet, you know, we've all heard stories of athletes, entertainers, and business models. We've all heard stories of the people who have the same path as Solomon and the same time as Solomon. Howard Hughes, the, the movie The Aviator, was, was about his life, right? His biographer wrote about his life. He was a business tycoon. He was one of the wealthiest men in the world at one point. Uh, one of, the, one of the, um, the words used to describe his life was he had a grand, miserable life. A grand, miserable life. I mean, there's, there's countless stories. I just went on an internet search and said, you know, prosperity and miserable do a Google search on those two things. You'll find, if you do that Google search, you'll find the stories of people like Boris Becker. Boris Becker was a Wimbledon championship when he was at the top of the tennis world, number one ranked, he was on the brink of suicide. And he said, I had won Wimbledon once, I'd won Wimbledon twice before, once as the youngest player. I was rich, I had all material possessions I needed. It's the old song of movie stars and pop stars who commit suicide. They have everything, and yet they are so unhappy. I had no inner peace. I was a puppet on a string. You don't even have to leave the tennis world. Andre Agassi of my generation said the exact same thing. The, the, Jack Higgins, the author of a, he was a successful novelist, a, and, and he was asked when he got to the top of his profession what he would like to have known as a boy. And his answer was that when you get to the top, there's nothing there. And that's what Solomon is claiming. I got to the top of everything in life. I alone was on the top of the mountain. And I learned, now that I'm at the top of the mountain, what is here to be gained from life? And he said, nothing. One of the commentaries, Daniel Aiken's commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes, he writes, the American dream is a lie and a failure. We live in a culture with more money, more entertainment, more pleasurable experiences, more recreation, and more stuff than every, any previous generation could ever have dreamed. And pain pills and antidepressants fly over the counters of our pharmacies. It's a miserable world where one of the funniest and richest men the world has ever seen, Robin Williams, uh, Robin Williams kills himself in despair. There's a crisis of despair. And, and I use that word despair, I think it's an important word. Because I'll put it this way, I have mental health issues in my family. I've shared the story about my brother. And so I believe that there are some people who, for whom, I believe there are some people for whom their biological chemistry is out of whack and they, they suffer clinical depression. However, I do believe that it is often misdiagnosed where a person is suffering what used to be called despair. That despair is the existential crisis that happens when you come to the realization that you are not able in yourself to extract any good from this life that you've been given. So, for my example, my brother and I've reflected on this a lot with him. He's bipolar, which means he goes he goes back and forth between mania and between episodes of depression. I do believe there's a there's a There's at least now in his life a biological, chemical thing going on there. But what I've observed in him and what we've actually talked about was, here's the thing, he could take medications to get himself back into the middle, but the thing was he hated his life when he was in the middle. So when he would take his medications and would get him back into the middle, he was despairing of life in his right mind because he had nothing to live for. And when I asked, and the reason I know this about him is because this is literally what he told me in a time when he's in his right mind. He said he literally quoted without having understood even, before he had even read the book of Ecclesiastes, he quoted the book of Ecclesiastes to me. It was one of the most profound conversations I ever had with him. He says, Dan, I don't know what I'm living for. He says, I'm a, he, my brother's really good looking. Say it like Zoolander, like my brother's really good looking. My brother's really good looking and he's charismatic. He he could get any, he's the life of the party and could get any girl he ever wanted. I mean, when I was a teenager, I just idolized the guy, right? Like that's who you want to be. And he said, I've partied. I, you know, I've devoted myself to pleasure. I've done that life. I could get any girl I wanted and it's true and he got it. I've lived that life. He says, You go home from the party and you're as empty as when you went. He's, he was studying, he said uh, at, at that one point he was studying to be an engineer. He's, he's studying and he's like, and I, and I look at him, what am I studying for? What am I doing this for? What is the purpose? What is the end? What is the, the Greek word was, what is the Telos. What is the goal for which I'm living and pursuing and living my life for? And he didn't have any. And so he said, what am I studying for? And then he changed his major and he was going to be a teacher. And he said, how can I be a teacher? How can I look another generation in the eye and say, here's life when I have nothing that I'm living for? And it was one of the most sad conversations I ever had with him. Because at the end, he said, I want what you have. You have an end. You have a purpose. You have a meaning in your life. And I want to believe in God. And and he didn't know how. And so he said, "I, I don't know how to make myself do that. So I guess I'll just live for trying to make other people happy. And that was his conclusion he came to when he was in his early 20s. There's a crisis of despair and do not like there there is mental health issues there is chemical issues and there is actual biological stuff going on in some people but do not always confuse and misdiagnose despair we live in a country that misdiagnoses and confuses despair for depression all the time and until you you got we we've, we've got to be wise about how we approach these things in our life but here's the deal getting back to the text solomon's not done and he does something He does something next that very few people do. He actually turns the focus of his pursuit onto his own methodology. And that is where he really experiences the crisis. Because up until this point, Solomon thinks that what he has been doing by giving his life as a research project to this, he has thought that this has been a noble pursuit he thought that if he just does this project, if he just does this research, if he puts himself in the place of all of us and does this for us, that he, that, that research project itself will be something of purpose and of value. And so what he does, in chapter, in, starting in verse, uh, verse 12, is he, he comes to this agonizing realization as he turns the focus of his study to the study itself. And he says, and so I turn to examine wisdom and madness and folly. And, and the this ver- this, this second part of this verse probably is a, 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 a good translation here is, for what else is anyone else going to do? <laughs> He says, what, what, for, for, for what can be done by the man who comes after the king? It's like, who else is going to do this? And so not only did I, did I pursue life with all my wisdom, then I turned my focus on wisdom itself. And then I saw that there's more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there's more gain in light and darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, and the fool walks in darkness. But yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. And I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why? Why? Why then have I been so very wise? And I saw that this also is vanity. Do you see what he's doing here? He's saying, I, turned my, I, turned, I had devoted my entire life to this research project, hoping that I could learn something from this research project that I could give to other people that they would learn from me. And then I started to focus on the research project itself, this wisdom project itself, and I realized, The whole project itself was vanity. He took his research paper and burned it. What he devoted decades to. He said this whole thing. Yeah, I might have learned from it. So what? No one's going to listen to me after I'm gone. And I'm going to die just like the fool. And what he says here, and look at all, this is where he drove himself to deep deep despair i hated life he says because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all including my project is vanity and a striving after the wind i hated all my toil He, he, he says in verse 20 i turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun In all his days, verses 23, all his days are full of sorrow. His work is a vexation. Even in night, his heart does not rest. It's one thing to use your manner of inquiry to explore life, like the scientist who uses the scientific method to explore reality. It's all fine and good, but try to, to ask the scientist if he can use the scientific method on the scientific method itself. Ask the rationalist if he can... Defend rationalism without recourse to logic. When manners of inquiry start being turned upon itself, they either become tautologies, meaning they, def- they they basically are are holding themselves up with nothing underneath, or they become contradictory. And that's what happens with Solomon. He he turns the manner of his focus toward his his research itself, and he realizes it can't hold up. And then he realizes his whole life has been this vain. Pursuit. Uh, you can read this. Tolstoy, the author Tolstoy, he wrote a book called A Confession, and in chapter five, you can find it online. Chapter five of Tolstoy's Confession, Tolstoy does the same exact project that Solomon does. Only, only Tolstoy uses a different. He uses a different uh, method. He, Tolstoy says. Uh, A quote from about the middle of the chapter, he says, My question, which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions, lying in the soul of every man, from the foolish child to the wisest elder. It was a question without an answer to which one cannot live. And and as I had found by experience, it was, what will come of what I am doing today or shall do tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? And in that chapter, he said his method, Tolstoy's method of pursuit was science and he and he said when he was young he was willing to accept just at face value the conclusions of science and he said i studied the hard sciences and i studied the social sciences and he said when i was young i was willing to take whatever science told me but then he says in the chapter he started turning his pursuit of truth and meaning towards science itself and he said the hard sciences give no answer and the answers that the social sciences give are wrong And that's what drove him to despair and suicide. So it didn't matter if your exploration, if the manner of your exploration was by wisdom or by science or by rationality. At some point, we stand in the void and we have to come and say, there is nothing grasped or gained from all this exploration of life. For Solomon, what caused him to question the value of his wisdom of reproach was the finish line of death. For all the good wisdom may do in his life, the wise man dies such as the fool. Now Solomon's thesis, his conclusion, this this is what all the data of his life has driven him toward. But there's another part to his research project. It's the implications. He's getting to the implications of his research. And this is where the book of Ecclesiastes, everything transforms. His implications of his research project. Here's how he finishes this research paper in chapter 2. There's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This is also vanity and a striving after wind. So, some read, and, and an older way of reading this, uh, was that Solomon just gives up. <laughs> and he kind of gives himself over to hedonism. Oh, what, what can he do? I, had, I, had this, I used to have this boss. I painted houses. And he had this phrase he'd always say, like, it'd rain in the morning, so we wouldn't be able to go paint houses and go, Ah, oh, kid, what are you going to do? And he would just say that. We would just wait for it. Oh, it's raining. Oh, what are you going to do? And that, it was, some people think Solomon was just saying that, like, oh, what are you going to do? Just you, here. Just eat and drink. Enjoy life. Whatever. You're going to die. Uh, most modern translations and interpretations of Ecclesiastes. I think read the book at a deeper and I think appropriate way where they realize that these 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 passages that come up where, Sol, where Solomon basically says, "Eat and drink and find joy," are not are not like his oh what are you going to do statements. They they actually are key and crucial through the argument of his book. They come up. There's five major sections where where this is actually the heart of the book. And it's actually the answer that Solomon gives in these positive statements. And verse 24 actually is actually probably not well translated. So, so in Ecclesiastes, there's three places, three other places where it says there is nothing better than to do something. So it's a, it's a common way that, it's a common, you know, common statement that, that Solomon uses. But here in the Hebrew, it is a completely different, completely different statement that our English translations have, have, have over, like just have, they've, they've taken it as if it's the same thing. But it's actually in the Hebrew, it's not a comparative at all. It's not a there's nothing better than. It's a, it's a statement of fact. It's a propositional statement here. And what are you saying here, what, it, what actually the Hebrew liter- literally says is, there is not good in man. And, and so I follow Walter Kaiser's translation here, where he, he says, this is, this is the... This the implication of Solomon's research project. The implication is there's nothing inherently good in man allowing him the ability to eat and to drink and to find joy in his toil. And so this, if, if a man is able to eat and drink and find joy in his toil, what, what Solomon's implication is, if there is someone who's able to do this, it must not be from within themselves. It must be that they have received this ability to, for wisdom and joy and knowledge, that they've received it from the hand of God. And and in the context, that's actually what he is arguing here, is that there is nothing good. He has explored every avenue of life. He's explored every pursuit, and he said that he did not have the ability within himself to, to put a purpose together from this life, to derive a joy or a good from this life. There is no good inherent man to do this. If someone is able to do this, it must be that they are receiving it from the hand of God. And so Solomon's actual implication of his research is when he stops pursuing the question of what is the good of life, and he started to try to observe who is finding good in life? When he changed his approach that way, he found out the only ones who are truly experiencing joy and finding gain are the ones who are receiving it from the hand of God. And this actually is going to transform. This is actually going to be the answer that will carry us through the rest of the book. It's actually when, when our perspective changes on the problem and we're able to receive from God's hand this gift of life. This is the perspective that makes the difference of life. Receiving all things from the hand of God. And we will, we're will we going to unpack this and explore this in the rest of the book. Of how Solomon talks about how we receive all of these things as a gift from God's hand. But I wanted to share with you, this is so true. It's, it's true materially, right? You don't truly find pleasure in your possessions until until you receive them as a gift. It's, it's true relationally. Try, try, try to force someone to love you. It's not going to happen. You can't force someone to love you. You've got you've to receive their love as a gift. It's true about success. You can't force success in your life. You can work hard. But a lot of it's going to be luck and chance and circumstance and a lot of it's going to be fleeting and so if if you are given any measure of success in your life what an amazing thing receive it as a gift from god's hand so it's true materially it's true relationally it's true as far as prosperity goes and and above all it's true spiritually Above all, it's it's true spiritually. This is the gospel. Not that we have striven after God, not not that we have taken life in the gospel and taken and found goodness in ourselves or found goodness in our life. The gospel is that there is no goodness in ourselves. But that salvation is the gift of God given to us to be received, as it says in the book of Titus. Verse 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 4 When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. When the goodness and kindness of God appeared, not the goodness and kindness of you or me was made manifest. When the goodness and kindness of our loving God appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, not because of our toil or our striving, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit who He poured out out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by his grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life so so God has given us he's poured his salvation he's given his salvation to us out of his goodness and the riches of his mercy he has poured his holy spirit into our hearts that we receive his empty vessels And he goes on to say, this changes our whole perspective of life. It changes our perspective of toil, changes our perspective of work. He says, the Apostle Paul says in the next verse, this is this trustworthy saying. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. It's not all meaningless. It's not all futile. The Apostle Paul says this life, this, the goodness of your works as a Christian can be both excellent and profitable. But not by striving after them to be excellent or profitable. Not, not, by, not by in themselves or in yourself them being excellent and profitable. It is by receiving the gift of God in Jesus Christ when the goodness and the excellency of God appeared, he saved us and he poured his spirit into us and he regenerated us. He, he bore us. he caused us to be born again and he poured his hope into us. That's the gospel in Ecclesiastes. Not that good could be found in us, but that good could be found in him, Jesus Christ. And so if you're here today today, and you don't know Jesus Christ, this this chapter of Ecclesiastes, this is why I said this is the chapter that at times has meant, has ha, has has made it made me to hold on to my faith. It is because in this chapter I stare into the abyss of life without Christ. I stare into the abyss of what would be the what be what would be my life without Christ. What would be the purpose or what would be the end for which I would be living? Would I be living for pleasure or prosperity? Would I be, would I, would be living to try to make my mark through significance? Yes, and it would be meaningless. But when I have opened myself up to Christ and, and when I have found that it's not the good in myself that I possess, but it is the gift of God in Christ that has been given, that is where I find purpose and excellency and, and, and benefit to my labors. See, it's not a message just for the non-Christian or the one who's not yet a Christian. It's a message for us. It's how how we find meaning and benefit and purpose to our work. Man, it's it's an awesome book. It's an awesome perspective. I pray for you. If you're here today, you don't yet know Christ, I would appeal to you today to come, to come and to know Christ. Receive that gift of grace in him.